And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6 as we continue our series that we've been in, The Gospel According to Romans. You know, I don't know about you, but I think we've all been there where we look at our lives and we think, man, there's some things I'd love to change about my life, some sins that I've been struggling with that <clears throat> I just can't get victory over. Uh, and they hound us and they, we try to escape from them and it's like they're always there to catch us again. I, I uh, read a, about a couple in Jacksonville, Florida who found a really unusual lizard in their home. And I looked it up and was tempted to show you a picture, but there are some things you just can't unsee. And so I just figured I would save it. But it was a lizard that had two heads, one on either side of the body. And so it was kind of a, a little frustrating thing. Every time they tried to go, they, they would stay in place because they were both going different directions. But I feel like that's how, sometimes the way we are when we are struggling with sin that we want to, uh, that we want to have victory over. Uh, we're in Christ. Everyone knows that, that battle. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a book in the 1800s. It's become very famous um, since then. Maybe some of you have read the book or seen the movie of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But it's the story of this medical doctor named Dr. Henry Jekyll who develops a potion that uh, turns him into another man, Edward Hyde. And Dr. Jekyll himself is very kind and even-tempered and compassionate. But Mr. Hyde is this cold-blooded killer. And the story revolves around the battle between these two characters that are controlled uh, and for who's going to have control in the same body. Somebody asked Robert Louis Stevenson where he got the inspiration for the story, and here's what he said. I looked inside myself. I find there's always a struggle with the beast that lives within me now. And that's the struggle of the two natures that we have, our sin nature and the one that's been redeemed and is dead to sin, but sin is alive and we have this battle. Uh, and that goes for even the best of the children of God. Uh, even the Apostle Paul struggled with this. He wrote in Psalm, in, in, I'm sorry, Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? I don't do what I know I should do, and I do what I know I shouldn't do. So even Paul struggled with this. Um, we find ourselves engaged in this battle, and, and don't just have one enemy, we have a number of enemies. We have ourselves, we have other people. Uh, the Bible talks about the, the world being a, a, a against us, and our flesh being against us. The devil, Satan is against us, and his demons. He can't get to God, but he can get to God's children, he can get to us. So the passage we're looking at today, I believe, is the foundation for helping us break free uh, from what's holding us back, from that sin that's holding us back in our lives, with that war that we're battling within. Um, you know, we've experienced the riches of God. We've experienced the abundance of God and his mercy and his love. Um, and the desire to go back to a life of sin would be like winning a, a lottery and then living in poverty. Um, you know, I don't know if you've heard this, but 70% of lottery winners go bankrupt after three years. So it wasn't a huge surprise to me to read about a couple from Michigan, actually, that uh, at three years prior won a lottery of $500,000, but they were arrested for uh, home robberies in five different counties. And you hear something like that, and you just think, that's just so 
crazy. It's so sad, most of all. Um, but, you know, think of, of us, we, we've, in a sense, we've won the lottery. We've experienced the grace of God and his mercy in our lives. And yet sometimes, not, maybe not long after coming to faith, maybe it's a battle that goes on. It's all too easy to fall back into old patterns of life that aren't healthy for us. They're not good. They're not pleasing to God. Um, so how can we live with one foot in the world and the other foot in a relationship with Jesus? And, and we can't. We, we, Jesus wants us to be all in with him. So for five chapters uh, in, in Romans, the apostle Paul has been saying that we have salvation by grace alone. And he anticipates the objections that are going to be raised about that. And so I want to read uh, Romans 6, and we're reading from, I've said before, the NIV, we're reading from the New Living Translation. So it says this, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death had no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. This is God's word. So Paul concludes chapter 5 with the fact that sin reigned over the earth and death through sin. Uh, and then Jesus initiates this takeover. He comes and he wants to take over our lives and be the Lord of our lives. And so that, he gives kind of an idea of where he's going in chapters 6 through 8 of Romans at the end of, the, at the end of Romans 5. So look at, at Romans 5, uh, 21 and, uh, 20 and 21. So it says, grace multiplied so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's kind of a summary in advance of where he's going in the next few chapters. So to begin this explanation of the reign of righteousness, the apostle asks a question 
that illustrates how alien grace is in a world that's dominated by death and the minds that are dominated by depravity, uh, given over to depravity. So the question in verse one is, are we, to, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, if sin brings grace and lots of sin brings a lot more grace, then shouldn't we just keep sinning as much as possible to keep grace flowing? Uh, and Paul probably had this question in every synagogue that he went into between Jerusalem and Rome. The opponents would say, you know, we know it can't be true that there's more grace than there is sin, and so the doctrine of grace has to be false. So when Paul said back in Romans 5 verse 20, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, he could sense the inevitable question coming, which is the question that he asks in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And his answer is, by no means. In, in other translation, that other translations, it says, of course not. May it never be. God forbid. No, no. Uh, J.B. Phillips, who was British, said, what a ghastly thought. Doesn't that sound British? Um, that's unthinkable. So why does all this matter? Why does it matter that, that we, we know that God's grace covers our sin, that grace needs to reign in our lives? It matters because God wants us to live for his glory. It matters because he is, he's perfect and he wants us to be perfect. He wants us to be holy like Jesus is holy. And so this is beginning, the, the, chapter six begins where Paul is talking about sanctification. So we're justified in Christ, and once we're justified, we, we live in that justification, but what happens in our lives is that God is in the process of making us to become like his son Jesus, be, to be holy. And so Paul had no use for even the slightest hint that grace encourages sin. And so he goes on to explain, and this is number one on your outline, how we are to be identified with Christ. How we are identified with Christ. You know, the Apostle Peter has a great prayer, a prayer in 2 Peter uh, where he says uh, that, that, he would, that the people he was writing to, he prayed that they would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I find myself praying that prayer for, for me, for, for myself, and, and also for you as I pray for us as a church and you as individuals. I pray that we would grow in, in the knowledge of who God is and in the grace of God. And I think that's a, a beautiful combination, and that's what Paul is saying here too. Paul knows that, one of the, that, that right living, if we're gonna live right, right living is based on right thinking. So we have to think well about Jesus and who he is and, and that impact that he has in our lives. One of the key words in Romans, actually Romans 6 in this passage, is the word no. It occurs three times and you've got them on your outline. But what does Paul want us to know? What does he want us to understand? He, what he wants us to know, and this is on your outline, is what our union with Christ means. What should that mean for our lives? And Paul uses baptism then as, uh, as such a, a powerful metaphor for these truths. So, um, one of the men that I've looked up to as a pastor for many years is a man named Ray Stedman, who was at Peninsula Bible Church 
up in the San Francisco area in Palo Alto. And one of his associates was a man named Ron Ritchie. <clears throat> Ron Ritchie talks about a time when they were doing a beach baptism and a young mother came up and said, would you baptize my daughter? And Ron said, well, how old is she? And the mom said, she's nine years old. And Ron said, well, I'd love to talk to her and, and, and see where she's at spiritually. And he did. She said she was a Christian. And, and Ron gave this example. He said, you know, the shadows were a little bit long. And he said, you know, you see my, the shadow of my hand on the sand. And she said, yeah, she did. But he said, you know, that's, that's just the shadow. The, the hand is the real thing. And when you come to faith in Christ, he said, that was the real baptism. You were joined with him. And what happened to him happened to you. Jesus was alive. Jesus was, was, he died. Jesus was buried. He was brought back to life again. And that's what happened to you, he was saying to this little girl, when you believed in him. And he pointed to the shadow on the sand and he said, when you go down into the water and are raised again, that's just a picture. It's just a shadow of what has already happened in your life. And this little girl caught on immediately. She said, I understand that. I, I, that's what's happened in my life. I've, I've asked Jesus to be my savior and be my Lord. And, and Ron baptized her. So in keeping that in mind, uh, the next thing on your outline is that baptism is the shadow of what happened to us when we committed our lives to Jesus. Look at verses three to five. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. So again, on your outline, in those verses, they're highlighting our identity in Christ. I'll give you an example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes this in chapter 10, verse 2. He says, They, the Israelites, were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So, what's he talking about there? Paul isn't talking about water baptism. Uh, he's, he's saying that the Israelite people were united with Moses as they recognized his leadership in their lives and their dependence on him as their leader. And says so the same thing is true for us. We are, we, we are united with Christ as we recognize that he is our Lord. He is our, he's the CEO of our lives. He's the boss of our lives. And he, our total dependence on him. And so when he says in verse five that we are united with him in his death, that's what he's saying that we are one with him, we are one with Christ. And the word united is an interesting word because it's a, it's a botanical word of, of two branches that are grafted together. Like you splice one and put the other one inside, you graft them together. It describes again our union with Christ. We're united with him. Um, Galatians 3.27 is another one where he writes, and this is on your outline, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. In other words, our identification with Jesus is so close, it's like wearing just snugly fit clothing. That's how united we are with him. 
One, one commentator writes this and explains it. Our spiritual history began at the cross. We were there as believers. He's talking to believers. as We were there in the sense that in God's sight, we were joined to him as he actually suffered on the cross. And then he says this, the time element should not disturb us because if we sinned in Adam, it is equally possible to have died to sin in Christ, the second Adam. So there are two important passages that I think will help us understand this a little bit more. The first one is one that many of you may have memorized. It was one of the first verses that I memorized as a new believer. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul is saying that just like we all sinned in Adam, we also died in Christ. And just as we died in Christ, we've been resurrected in Christ. Uh, Paul wrote in Colossians 3, he says this, that since then you have been raised with Christ, talking to the church, You've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so all of those things are true of us. We were crucified with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We rose to a new life with Christ. We reign with Christ now. And verses six and seven tells us what that means practically. It means practically Jesus didn't serve sin and we shouldn't serve sin either. Look at verse six. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. So our old selves, this is on your outline, in verse six refers to the person we were prior to Jesus transforming our lives. And this self was put to death in Christ. So our old sinful selves, our sinful bodies have been made ineffective positionally. Now we need to live that out experientially. We need to live that out in our lives. We don't have to serve sin anymore. And then Paul finishes with this explanation in verses eight to 10. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. Verse 10, when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So that we, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So what this means is that we, the power of sin has been broken in our life and we are freed now not to have to sin. No Christian has to sin. Every time we sin, we're disbelieving God on some level. Uh, Henrietta Mears, the author of What the Bible is All About, says no Christian has to sin, but God lovingly has provided for such an emergency. Because we do sin, we do struggle with it. Freedom, you know, you think of what freedom, if you ask the person on the street what freedom is, they would say, it's, I can do whatever I want. But the Christian definition of freedom is not that. 
the, the, the biblical definition of freedom is that freedom is the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to do what we ought to do, to, to be obedient to God, to please him in our lives. We died in him, we're raised in him, and now we are seated with him in the heavenly places. And this, again, is what the apostle writes. And what he means here is that imagine a person who has become wealthy through hard work, through a lot of discipline, he's become financially wealthy. Uh, and he's worked hard for it, a lot of blood, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears. So then that, that person, let's say they're a Christian, they get married. Uh, how does the wife come to all those riches? She comes into all those riches legally, by marriage, a legal union, by grace, if you will. That one person has done everything in order to bring the wealth to their name, and that second person just gets married. It's a legal union. It's by grace, just like that. They get, they get all that wealth. They get to share in it. And that's what happened to us in our salvation with Christ. So, and, and then that, so why is Jesus at the right hand of the Father? Again, verse eight, uh, and since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We live with him in, at, at the, where he's at, the right hand of the Father in a place of honor. That's where you put the prime minister. That's where you put a conquering general is at the right hand of, of, of the king. And that's where we are. And the reference isn't on your, on your outline, but it's Ephesians chapter two, verse six. And Paul says this, and God raised him up with Christ. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So we're seated with Christ in heavenly realms. One commentator, uh, Kent Hughes, put it like this. It's on your outline. He said, it is impossible to continue living unchanged when you become a Christian. In fact, I will put it even stronger. Those who argue that grace allows a buffer for sin, that their sin will ultimately glorify God anyway, are revealing they are not under grace. They are not Christians, no matter how much they argue otherwise. When we have experienced solidarity with Christ, our lifestyle is affected, just as it was by our solidarity with Adam. If one's life has not changed, and if there's no impulse for further change toward Christ, he or she is very probably not a Christian. So now we come to the practicality of all this. How do we put this to work in our lives? Now Paul shows us, and this is number two on the outline, the reality of our identification with Christ. Verse 11, so you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. And the word consider yourselves or reckon yourselves or count yourselves is another important word in Romans. It's mentioned like 19 times in the letter. And the idea is that we are to think deeply, to meditate on our legal position in Christ to the point that it makes a difference in how we live our lives. It should make a difference in how we live our lives. And so what are we to think about? We're to think about the fact that we are dead to the power of sin 
and that we are alive to God through Christ Jesus. That's what we're to think about. That's what we're to meditate on. So verse 11 is also in the present tense. So it's the idea of we keep on considering ourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we don't stop thinking about it. We continually think about it and we think about it more. And the idea, and this is on your outline in verse 11, is that we meditate on the truth of this and when we do that, it checks our desire to sin. Because there's this battle going on in our lives. We're like that two-headed lizard going in different directions. You know, before he was a Christian, St. Augustine uh, had a problem with controlling himself sexually. He was very promiscuous in his life. After he became a Christian, one day he was walking along and an old girlfriend showed up and was trying to entice him back into a relationship with her. And uh, Augustine was very polite, but basically ignored her advances. And suddenly this gal thought, you know, maybe he doesn't recognize me. And so he goes up to Augustine and, and says, Augustine, it's me. And Augustine, who had recognized her, responded and famously said, yes, I know who you are, but it is no longer me. He changed. Christ had come into his life. He was dead to sin. He did not want to live for that anymore. He was choosing to live for Christ. And after all this, Paul tells us now, and this is number three on your outline, how we should respond. The knowledge needs to produce now grace in our lives. You know, the men's ministry for this year has been encouraging the men to read a book, The Habits of Grace by David Mathis which I just finished a couple weeks ago and which I would warmly recommend to all of you. It's a great book, The Habits of Grace by David Mathis. Um, And what these habits are, are ways that we can place ourselves before God so that he can change us. How do we place ourselves before God? Every time we pray, We're placing ourselves before God. Every time we open the word to read the word or meditate on the word or memorize the word, we are placing ourselves before God. Uh, Every time we practice any of the, the disciplines of the Christian life, any of the habits of grace, if you will, we do that. So look at verse 12. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body, verse 13, become an instrument of evil to serve sin. In other words, be on constant guard, like Augustine was, about making your, whatever it is, your tongue, your hands, your feet, available as tools of righteousness, of unrighteousness. In fact, go on the offensive. Look again at verse 13. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. So this is where, and this is again on your outline, we offer ourselves to God. And maybe in doing that, we can say something like, Father, I praise you that that I have died with Christ. And, And now I've also been resurrected with him and I reigning with him. 
I'm seated at his right hand in the heavenlies and so I want to use my, my hands and my arms and my voice and my feet and my entire body for your glory. I want, to, I want, it to be, I want them to be instruments of righteousness for you. Lord, I present them to you. And then we do that daily with our entire lives. We present our lives daily before the Lord as a living sacrifice, like Paul will say later in Romans. And then look at verse 14. This is why we do this. Sin is no longer your master. For you're no longer, you no longer live under the requirements of the law. You live under the freedom of God's grace. So, you know, another pastor I've mentioned, Ray Stedman, another pastor that I've admired for a long time who's with the Lord now is a man named Stuart Briscoe. For many years, a pastor in Elmbrook, uh, Wisconsin. And uh, he's American, but he grew up in England and uh, actually spent all of his childhood there and became, um, was drafted in the Royal Marines during the Korea, uh, Korean War. And as it happened, Briscoe ended up getting put with this very imposing sergeant major who made him and all the other soldiers serving with him shake in their boots. Uh, He was not a very nice man. Um, And Briscoe didn't realize the negative impact that this guy had had in his life until he was released finally from the Marines after serving the time that he had agreed to serve. And Briscoe had this newfound freedom. And he said, I was walking around with my hands in my pocket and slouching a little bit and even whistling, all which would have drove this commanding officer nuts. But I was doing that and enjoying being able to do that. And then what did he do? He encountered this commanding officer walking down the street towards him. And he remembered, his initial response was to stand at attention and salute him. And he said, you know what? I had to fight against, but this man no longer had authority over me. I've died to this man. And so uh, Briscoe wasn't dead, neither was that commanding officer dead. But as far as this man's domination over Briscoe's life was concerned, it was all a matter of history. It was over. And so as Briscoe put it, he said this, I did some reckoning and I decided not to yield to this man's tyranny and I presented my body to my newfound freedom as a former Marine. And I kept slouching and I kept my hands in my pocket and I kept whistling and the sergeant couldn't do a thing about it because he was dead to that man. In Christ, we have died to sin. Sin no longer has authority to enforce its demands on our lives. Death has severed the relationship. That's what it means that we have died to sin. So we've been talking about justification and now Paul is beginning in chapter six to talk about this process of, of becoming like Jesus that we are all in when we are justified. And that's called sanctification. So if, if we look at the passage as a whole, what are the principles of sanctification that we can draw from the passage? You've got them on your outline. Uh, the first one is that even in the most mature Christian, sin is not dead. It's positionally dead, but we're in battle against the sin. That's what, what I mean there. But something that we always struggle against. And the reason we have to fight against sin is that we are all sinners. That's why. Perfection in this life is not possible. Secondly, our mortal body, our physical body, 
is the way sin has its hold on us. So this passage challenges us to become who we are in Christ. In Christ, we have died to sin. In Christ, we are alive to God. And so we base our daily lives on the truth of that and we live that out. We spend the rest of our lives understanding what that means. Number three, sin does not have to dominate the new person that I am in Christ. The new person I am in Christ will always hate sin and will always long for righteousness, to be like Jesus. God is on our side. His goal is to produce the character of his son in us. And if this weren't so, it would be pointless for Paul to say in verse 13, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. And number four, although it's, it's possible for us to offer the parts of our bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, like it says again in verse 13, we don't have to do this. The alternative is that we, and this is on your outline, that we draw on the power that we have available to us through the Holy Spirit living in us. We can't do this by ourselves, but God's given us his Holy Spirit to do it through us. And this leads to the last truth that we see in these verses about sanctification, and that is that as Christians, we can now offer our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. That's the thrust of these verses. So let me just end by giving you one practical example. And that is our tongue. Uh, Jesus' brother, James, thought a lot about the power of the tongue. And he wrote this in James 3. It's on your outline. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire and and is itself set on fire by hell. Those are pretty strong words. If your tongue is not given over to God as an instrument of righteousness, then what, what James says will be true of you. You don't need to have some you know, be speaking publicly to, uh, to say a casual lie or uh, a small amount of slander or a little swearing. Any of that will do it. So how can you use your tongue as an instrument of righteousness? Memorize God's word and speak God's word. Sing praises to God. Say words of encouragement to help those around you go on in their relationship with the Lord. Maybe learn about their relationship with the Lord. Sharing Jesus with your friends and family. Inviting them to come and and hear the message about Jesus. So that what Paul says to the Ephesians is this, let everything you say be good and helpful to the spiritual progress of others. So that your words will be an encouragement and a blessing to those who hear them. That's what we want to do with our tongues. We give our tongues over as instruments of righteousness to bring glory to God. So what are you using your tongue for? And then I challenge you this week to go through each part of your body and say, what what am I using my feet for? What am I using my eyes to see? 
what are I, am I using my hands to do and my, my, my feet, where's my, where are my feet taking me? If you can be a blessing to others, do that. That's what God wants us to do with our bodies. That's the power of the Holy Spirit lived out in our lives as we are in this process of being sanctified. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you um, that you want all of us. You, win a, you want to win this war with sin with us. It's possible. Father, please help us as we struggle to not have sin reign in our lives any longer because we know it has been dethroned by our life in Christ. And so we want to know that it's been reckoned with. And please help us now by your Holy Spirit to, to live not only a life of resistance, but to go on the offensive and, and to give our, all of our bodies, present them to you as instruments of righteousness. Help us, Lord, to take those steps that we, we know the pull of the flesh, we know the pull of the world, but to be strategic because we have you on our side. Give us the power, help us to make use of the power of the resurrection that you've given us in Jesus. And if there's someone here, Lord, who does not know you personally, may they just respond right now to you in faith and say, Lord, I need you. I want you to be on the throne of my life. Love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to strengthen you in the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Amen. So be it. God bless. Have a great day.